invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, at verse 33. John 11, at verse 33. Before the virus hit us, in our afternoon service, I was going through a series on the miracles of Jesus. But one of the miracles I didn't get to is what I would term the greatest miracle, the monarch of miracles. But how can we say that when any miracle of Jesus is certainly a great thing, it's certainly a supernatural thing? Yet the miracle before us usually is thought of as the greatest. Prior to our text, Lazarus, Jesus' close friend, had become very ill. Earlier in the chapter, we find shock that Jesus didn't go right away to deal with that problem. There was bewilderment, confusion, incomplete faith, mourning. And with the background of those verses, the coming action of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus is all the more remarkable. At verse 32, we notice that he has finally come to the location of the tomb where Mary and Martha, the sisters also, are dwelling. I'm going to pick it up at verse 33 through verse 44, which will be our text this morning. And keep in mind that John was an eyewitness of these things. And what he writes is, is completely believable. And we should keep that in mind because we're dealing with some very unusual things. Let me read these passages to you. This passage to you. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. Our text opens with weeping, with wailing, and in those days they really let it all out. 
It was a very noisy scene by Mary and the mourners, Martha. It brings an emotional response from Jesus there in verse 33. When he saw what was happening, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Probably you could tell that by looking at his face, the tone of his voice, possibly constant sighing as he came upon the scene. Lazarus, as I indicated, had been the beloved friend of Jesus, as well as his two sisters, Mary and Martha. But to some onlookers, it must have seemed that Jesus was losing it. What happened to the calm demeanor of the uh, teacher, the rabbi from Nazareth? Why is he breaking down so emotionally at this point? Well, we have here a most remarkable unveiling of the heart of Jesus. He would not act until he himself had entered into the solemnity of death, the awfulness of death. At that moment, he felt its burden and was much aware of the devastation that death had brought upon humanity. Verse 34, there's a real mark of genuineness here because a fictitious story probably would not have had details like this. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now, there was no pretended display by Jesus in asking that question, simply being willing, being invited to the tomb. Show me where the tomb is. And then we come to verse 35 as he approaches the tomb and stands there. We have, as many of you know, the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. Back in verse 33, he was greatly troubled and was deeply moved. That's true. But this was a little different. This time, the word's a little different. William's translation says, he burst into tears. If Jesus had tears in his eyes previously, at that moment when he was face to face with the tomb, with the death of his good friend Lazarus, and all that was involved with that, it's a stronger word, tears of genuine grief, revealing the fullness of the humanity of Jesus, even while he remained in his deity. Of course, this account did not end here. Jesus didn't simply weep at the tomb and then turn and sorrow, wish condolences to Mary and Martha and, and the mourners, and then leave. There'd be a little comfort in the passage. Now we go on in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. They were impressed with the depth of his concern. Jesus really loved this man. We knew he was a close friend, but my, Jesus is really upset by this. Then in verse 37, we see, read these words, but some of them said, and it's in the imperfect Greek tense, meaning they were saying kind of over and over and over again to themselves, to one another. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, it could very well be that uh, some of these people, uh, they were uh, trying to trick Jesus in some way, put him into a corner, nitpicking to find some fault to him. They couldn't say, isn't he the miracle worker? Well, we understand that it took him several days to get here after he learned about the fact Lazarus was ill. 
Look at him. He's all upset now. Why didn't he come sooner? But I think there were others who very seriously thought, you know, just earlier in John chapter 9, he had healed the blind man in a remarkable way. Couldn't he use his supernatural power to somehow keep his friend from dying? Verse 38. Then Jesus... Deeply moved again. We, we, he's got a response here probably of a number of things. Certainly the weeping, the sorrow aspect of it. The distress of his heart and mind. The anger against sin and what sin had done to humanity. How deep his feelings were. The prophet Isaiah tells about the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew what grief was, especially at this moment. It was not as a stoic Jesus passed through uh, history. No, he too suffered from the evil which surrounded him on every side. So he's deeply moved. Same verb as in verse 33, it's an interesting Greek word. I'm going to try to pronounce it for you. It's difficult. It's something like this. Embrimaomai. Embrimaomai. Deeply moved. Verse 39. Jesus is going to do more than simply weep at the tomb and be deeply moved by it. He's now going to go into action. The first of three commands he gives here. Take away the stone. How majestic as he acts and speaks with, with quiet dignity in the midst of his profound emotion. Remember, with the first miracle in John chapter 2, the turning water into wine, he also kind of dealt with it the same way. He gave certain directions. But he avoids any pomp and parade idea. He speaks very simply. With his miracles, Jesus never wasted his power. Someone has said, only God can raise the dead, but men can move a stone away from the tomb. So he didn't have to put his hand out there and somehow the, the stone begins to move. No, he gave directions for the men who were around to move that stone. Well, when Martha heard what he said, she said, Lord... <clears throat> Maybe you're not aware of this, but uh, my brother's been dead four days. There's a Greek word. Actually, literally, he's a fourth day man. He's a fourth day man. He's really decaying in there. There has to be a terrible, terrible odor as soon as you take the stone away. You wonder if Martha supposed that Jesus only desired to view the body. It would seem so. As John records this, Martha's comment seems to emphasize the greatness of the miracle that's going to follow. After all, what she said makes sense from the human point of view. Lazarus' life indeed had ended. He had been buried. The grave sealed. The body was decaying. Foolish and futile to open the tomb. Probably many standing by would say, well, now we can understand why Jesus might want to move a little closer to the tomb, bow his head, and pay his respects. 
but to take the stone away and open up that, that terrible smell? Leon Morris writes, this verse, verse 39, is of the greatest importance for John's understanding of what took place. He puts some stress on the actuality of the death of Lazarus. He leaves no doubt that he will be describing a miracle. Verse 40. We find something of a mild rebuke to Martha here, but also a reminder of what he had said earlier. Undoubtedly, she had heard his response back in verse 4 when he learned about it through people that Martha and Mary had sent to tell him about Lazarus' illness. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then earlier, verse 25, he had said these wonderful words to Martha, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He had shared that with Martha, previous to our text here. Mark Merrill Tenney writes, To Jesus, the raising of Lazarus was no problem. The chief difficulty was to remove the uncertainty and hesitancy from Martha's attitude that the glory of God might be revealed to her and all present. So her faith was faltering here a little bit. She took her eyes about who Jesus was and what he said he could do. And so Jesus mildly rebukes her there in verse 40. Notice his reference to the glory of God, a visible and wonderful display of his divine excellencies and internal and invisible perfections. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So even in his humanity, his humanity that was weeping at the tomb, Jesus nevertheless is displaying the glory of God and what he is saying and what he is doing. That was uppermost in his mind. And notice how in verse 40, belief comes before seeing. Martha, didn't I tell you, if you believe, that's number one, then you will be in position to see the glory of God. Something similar in John chapter 6, verse 69, where Peter, speaking on behalf of the other disciples, said, we have believed, number one, and therefore have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's a lesson for Martha here. Now we come to verse 41 and 42. So they took away the stone. We're not told how powerful the smell was. Undoubtedly it was, and the men who helped move the stone could hardly wait to get back away from the tomb. Jesus is still there. He lifts up his eyes. And he prays out loud. He doesn't mumble a few things, a few words that nobody can understand. He wanted to catch the attention of those standing around and show that his miracles were not from Satan, not from hell, but from the Lord God Almighty, his Father. There was a mysterious and intimate union, was there not, between the Father and the Son. Jesus said in John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things 
that are pleasing to him. Jesus was not like the popular wonder worker of the day. who had all kinds of little tricks and things, but they sought to magnify themselves. Jesus, in humility, is praying before his Father. He offers thanks before anything even had happened. He did not even ask the Father to raise Lazarus in his prayer. His prayer was trustful, simple, sincere. His words should be a powerful witness to who he was, to the people standing around. And remember that as he is giving this prayer, in a very humble way, his soul was filled with rage against death, against the evil one. So he advances to the tomb, as John Calvin puts it, as a champion who prepares for conflict. Now, as we come to verse 43, let me just back up here at the end of verse 42. His prayer is, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, as we come to verse 43, we need to take a deep breath here, figuratively speaking, and focus our attention on that incident and try as much as we can to put ourselves back to that day. What a moment it was. Silence. The mourning had stopped. The wailing, the weeping had stopped. All eyes are riveted upon Jesus. And then he speaks his words, next words, with a loud voice so that people would be aware that the result would be due to his calling forth of Lazarus. The first thing he says is, Lazarus! Now, many years ago, decades ago, there was an agnostic guy named Robert Ingersoll, and he criticized the Christian faith and ridiculed it one way and up the other. And uh, he said that the reason he said Lazarus' name was that beforehand, he and Lazarus had worked out this little plan where Lazarus would pretend to be dead, would be put in the tomb, and when Jesus said his name, Jesus said, I'll, I'll make sure the stone is removed out of the way so you can come out. When you hear your name, that's the cue for you to come out. So that's how this Robert Ingersoll explained this of the greatest miracles. I like what Augustine said better. St. Augustine said, Lazarus' name was said so that all would not be raised. Because what do we read in John chapter 5? An hour is coming, said Jesus, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That is the voice of the Son of Man in the preceding verse. They will hear his voice, all, everyone, they'll come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32, that we read a moment ago. So as, as, it was as if he said, Lazarus, this time. Only Lazarus. And then he said, come out. Duro, the Greek word, duro. Here. Outside. Come out this way. Toward me. 
Jewish way of preparing a body for burial was to swathe it in bandage-like wrappings around the body, most of the body, leaving the shoulders bare. Now there'd be a cloth put over the head. So that's why we read verse 44 in response to what Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. What a sight that was. The response had to have been electric. Mouths fell open, eyes bulging out as they saw this man who they knew had died coming forth. Many years ago, in my first church I served, we had a young couple in our church who invited Nancy and myself to go see the DeMille film, The Greatest Story on Earth. Some of you perhaps have seen that or saw it. There's one scene that stands out with me. It was right before the intermission. And the resurrection of Lazarus had just been depicted. And there was one older man there, awestruck at what he had seen, and he begins to back up, and he begins to run back toward the city. And then Handel's Hallelujah Chorus begins to play. As he runs along, he said, Jesus just rose a man from, raised a man from the dead, or whatever it was he said, referring to this resurrection. You won't believe it. You won't believe it. He comes running into the city. People think he's crazy. But the Hallelujah Chorus then builds to Hallelujah, and then intermission. But what an effect that had on the audience. At least it had an effect on me. So I saw that, and I think that was what it was like that day. Jesus came to destroy him that had the power of death. We read in 1 John 3, 8, the devil. It's one thing to profess a theoretical belief earlier about I'm the resurrection and the life. Quite another to approach death as Jesus did here. Yet with majestic simplicity, the marvelous deed is recorded. If anything, John shows that no one expected this at all. This miracle would be his last great general public witnessed by Jesus as the incarnate word. Martha had heard his words back in verse 25, and now Lazarus heard that same voice, Lazarus, come out. And then our text closes at the end of verse 44, where we read, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The fact that he had to ask this to the bystanders probably shows they were still overcome with amazement that nobody was moving. And Lazarus is standing there with all these bandages and things around him. And Jesus very calmly says, "Uh, go ahead, you can... Loose him, unbind him, let him go. With this statement, the curtain is closed on this event. But as we move into chapter 12, we don't have time to go into that this morning, but what a reunion later in Bethany, the hometown of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Verse 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So there he is. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. What a, 
What a moment even before that dinner, the great reunion of Lazarus with his sisters and with other friends. Yet we're not told that Lazarus ever answered any questions. Maybe they asked it, but we don't have any record of it. Lazarus, where did you go? What was it like? Did you see angels? What does it feel like to come back to earth? We know nothing of that. Scripture is silent. But there's one more thing told about Lazarus, which is somewhat surprising. Chapter 12, go down to verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. All right, so far so good. So this would be a great opportunity for these people who largely had rejected Jesus and did not believe in him. Here's what more proof do they need that Jesus is the Son of God? Verse 10. So, therefore, because of what they were viewing, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They were after Jesus. We might as well kill Lazarus too. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in the Jesus. Wow. The simple heart of men, the hardened hearts of men, even there's proof and evidence. You know, from our Christian perspective, our defense of the faith, we have wonderful apologists, those, those who defend the faith, who have written books and they have videos and all kinds of things that are out there defending the Christian faith is reasonable. But because of sin that clouds men's minds, they cannot grasp it, or if they grasp it, they fight against it. So we have that here, interestingly. Well, whatever Lazarus may have seen or experienced, keep in mind that it's nothing compared to what we are going to experience the last day, including Lazarus himself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, We shall not all sleep, which is a metaphor for death. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. The resurrection of Lazarus is not really a resurrection, therefore, in the fullest sense, fullest scriptural sense, because Lazarus resumed the same status he had before his illness. The process of decay had been reversed. His body revitalized, but he still faced future physical death again. If Jesus had resurrected Lazarus, the stone would not have been removed because Lazarus could have walked right through the stone, even as Jesus walked through the walls in his glorified body in the upper room. So what are some lessons for us from this marvelous, very interesting text? First of all, surely this miracle reveals Christ as the Messiah of the Old Testament who is to come. It was an open symbol of Christ's conquest of death and hopelessness. But it is not God's sovereign will to banish the reality of death. We must face it unless Jesus returns first. Death remains our last great enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. 
But death will be the final step in our amazing salvation, including the time when finally at the last day our bodies will be united, glorified bodies united with our souls. Another lesson is that in the ultimate application of this text, the raising of Lazarus points to the full manifestation of Jesus as who he said he was, the resurrection and the life. By combining the resurrection of Lazarus with the I am statement in verse 25, he shows that he is the one who bestows eternal life. He alone grants new life to spiritually dead people. Number three, how important this was for the 12 disciples, including John, who wrote this. See, even after the death of Jesus, they still had difficulty in understanding what was happening. But after Pentecost, one of the things that would be most on their mind would be, we serve a living Savior. He's alive. And we declare the resurrected Jesus to you, the good news that he conquered death that can give eternal life. And finally, the subject of death is certainly something we need to face. What about your faith in Jesus this day? Do you really have that faith and assurance and confidence that when you die, your soul will go to be with the Lord in heaven? Remember, the alternative is to be in, under condemnation in eternal hell. Well, whether we are baffled by death's ministry, overcome by its sorrows that are certainly genuine when a loved one or a friend passes away, whether we're frustrated by death's ruthless, ruthless termination of our ambitions and activities, Jesus holds the answer to it. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, to John who is at that point laying prostrate before the glorified risen Christ. John, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. And of course, the wonderful passage that I read for you a moment ago from John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Jesus goes on to say, Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We die physically, but as far as our souls are concerned, we will never experience separation from the love of God. Jesus asked Martha, Martha, do you believe this? And I've asked you, congregation, this morning, do you believe this? May God's grace be upon you to give that assurance of your faith and rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture which brings us face to face with the reality of death, but then gives us that wonderful hope of resurrection from death. Lord, we travel through this life knowing that at any moment we can experience death, a sudden accident, a sudden disease, whatever it might be. But Lord, we are your people we rest in you. Our faith is what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so we face it not looking forward to it, but knowing that you will be with us through the valley of the shadow of death and not leave us alone. Bless us 
to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.